Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Jamie Attenberg, is the author of the story collection Instant Love and the novels The Kept Man and The Melting Season. She has also contributed essays and criticism to The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and Salon. Jamie Attenberg is here today on Between the Covers to talk about her latest novel, The Middle Steens, a novel that has become both a bestseller and been met with critical acclaim. The Middle Steens was nominated for the LA Times Book Prize for Fiction, was an Amazon Book of the Month, and received the coveted starred review from Publishers Weekly. The Kirkus Review calls The Middle Steens a sharp-tongued, sweet-natured masterpiece of Jewish family life, and NPR called it so readable it was practically edible. Welcome to Between the Covers, Jamie Attenberg. Hi, I'm happy to be here. So the crux of the Middlestein family is Edie Middlestein. And it's also sort of, she embodies the moral dilemma of the book, that we have a character who's literally eating herself to death. She's ignoring the warning signs of her body. She's ignoring the um, concerns voiced by her, her extended family. And she's sort of doubling down on the, the, the comfort and pleasure that she's receiving from food. Tell us a little bit about the, the origin story of how you came upon this character. Well, uh, originally I wanted to write about uh, the community where I grew up, which is it's set in the suburbs of Chicago, and that's where I grew up. And I did want to write about a family in distress. And I do think I th- when I was growing up, I, I certainly grew up in a fast food culture, and I come from a family we do love food. Um, but we're certainly not at the state that Edie's in. Um, but there is a, a problem with obesity in, in the community where I grew up and all over the Midwest and obviously all over the country too. Um, but I wanted to also write about somebody who was really strong, like a really strong um, matriarch, uh, a pillar in her community. And uh, and so I, it was just a very organic, I'm sure every writer says this, it was a very organic thing. Like I wanted to write about somebody who was, who was a large presence and and so that was part of it. I, it all it all kind of just came together at once. Um, but I really wanted to write about food because, you know, for a couple of reasons. I mean, she could have been a smoker or a drinker or done drugs, but food seemed uh, more interesting to me because it's something that you have to contend with every single day. And also, of course, people get judged very easily in this country on either end of the spectrum if you're t- too big or too small. Um, and there, it was just like very rich source material. The title for the book is is really brilliant in that sense because it really encapsulates a lot of the different things the book's about. So we have the name Middlesteens, sort of a reference to middle America, to middle class, to our middles, so in terms of getting larger in terms of eating, and also to the fact that it's a Jewish family, all within one word. That right. was an <laughs> impressive thing to pull off. It right? was really funny. Well, I I had probably wrote about half the book, and I didn't have a name for them yet, That what the family's name was. And then I... And originally, the name of the book was Sprawl, which is became, became a chapter later on, a chapter title later on in the book because I was thinking more about it being about suburban sprawl and also c- collapse. Um, but then, when I thought of their name, it made me laugh because it was really so on the nose, and I, I don't, I was worried it was too on the nose, and I sent it to my agent, the name to my agent, and maybe a couple other people, and they all had the same response, which, which is that they laughed. And anytime you can get that out of a title, you you know, you're way ahead of the game. So I really, it became, it just became so them instantly. I knew exactly who they were 
kind of when I, I mean, I kind of already knew who they were, but because I'd been writing them for a while. But then when you, when you come up with their name, names are so important in, in books, in literature, in art. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that really makes this narrative stand out is we don't have a character who's trying to lose weight, who's struggling and yo-yoing in terms of dieting. She's, she's not wanting to change course. And so that puts a lot of pressure on the other characters in the novel. And in a way, this is how we learn about the other characters is she's sort of the immovable object. And really the novel, it, it is about Edie, but it really is just as much about the way the rest of her family and, and friends are, are responding yeah. to her. Can, can you tell us a little bit about some of the the coping mechanisms and responses of her immediate family. Yeah, I mean, there. I mean, it's about how definitely about how a family works together or doesn't work together. I mean, I'm showing how they're they have a lot of communication issues. I kind of wanted to show the right way by showing the wrong way, if that makes sense. And and my goal for this book was, I don't want people to walk away from this book and think I should should really watch what I eat. It's more about communication between family members. So there's um, Robin is her daughter who is pretty unhappy in her own life. Um, she likes, everyone has their own vices in the book, so Robin drinks, likes to drink. And she doesn't, she doesn't really want to contend with, or deal with her mother. She was actually the first voice that I heard in the book because I heard somebody saying, I don't really want to take, I don't want to deal with this at all, which is a very honest response when we have a sick family member or a sick friend. I mean, no one thinks to themselves, nobody wants to do it. Like, it's not a fun thing to think about. So she, but she, um, she realizes that she has to step up, that it's her time to step up. Benny, who is um, her son, Edie's son, um, he has his own vice, which is he likes to smoke pot every night in the backyard um, in, of his suburban home. And he kind of has an avoidance. He's a very good, you know, kind of an easygoing guy, and he doesn't want to deal with it. And he has this wife, Rochelle, who is kind of on the other end of the spectrum in terms of eating, where she's very controlled about it. And she... Um, follows Edie around in her car and watches her go from fast food restaurant to fast food restaurant. Nobody, but she's, some people don't like her uh, when they read the book, but she, she's the only one who, who initially is really steps up to, to, to take care of Edie. And so I sort of, once I understood that she was about really keeping her family together, I really, I started to admire her as a character reading about the different responses from readers about which characters they liked and which they didn't, you really put together a family where everybody is flawed. There isn't a specific heroic character in the book, and they're all extremely judgmental of each other in a realistic way. Yeah. But as a parallel to that, as an author, you've really extended uh, a great deal of empathy to each of your characters. So at different points in the book, we can really understand the motivations of, of everybody in the Middlestein family and also see their foibles, obviously. Yeah, I wanted to understand them all. I, the stakes were set pretty high where they were all going to be deeply flawed. I'm, I'm much more interested in um, a flawed character than one who understands. I mean, you know, there's, writing a book about a functional family would be like chapter two, they all got along. Sure. <laughs> So, um, but what was interesting also is that that uh, we start out as readers in a place of judgment with the with the characters in the book. Because so, I and I did too. You yes. did. Okay, yeah. that's interesting. I started out in a place of here's here's how everyone's behaving. I don't know if poorly is the right word, but they're not behaving well towards each other. And let me unpack 
let me figure out, let me get to a place of, of understanding why they behave that way. And, and I did, I genuinely approached it from a place of compassion. It was something I thought about every single day when I was writing. I wanted to infuse compassion in it. I wanted people to understand that you can be messed up and, and still be a good person. Just, you don't necessarily know, we don't necessarily know the right way to behave. And, um, it doesn't make you a bad person if you are scared or hesitant or, or you hide from hide from him, you know, solving a problem. Um, but I I was hoping that it would, you could re- people could read it and and just walk away from it and go, well, maybe I could have that con- have a kind of con- have that conversation with somebody if they're overweight or if they're having in a bad relationship or whatever it is. I really just wanted to I, w- I wanted to take a mess and 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 solve it. I don't know if I solved it, but you know, try to get to a place of peace with it. Well, you do definitely draw the reader from a place of judgment with of the characters to a place of understanding. And that process of of starting in a sort of reflexive, automatic response to a certain problem and being without even un, understanding that this is happening to us as the reader coming to a place of empathy and compassion is, I think, pretty remarkable. Oh, thank you. I, um, I think the, the one character that people have the the most difficulty with is, and I didn't even mention it, which is Richard Middlestein, who is Edie's husband, who I'm not really giving anything away here. At the at, In the second chapter of the book, he leaves her. And that that is when I do readings or I get emails from people, that is the act that people have the most trouble with because he's leaving his, his morbidly obese wife who's, who's sick. She has diabetes. She's having surgeries. Um, he leaves her because their relationship has fallen apart. But people don't understand how you can leave somebody who's sick, um, and what the and kind of what our moral obligations are to take care of, of people in our life. So, yeah, but I, even he, I, I tried to, yeah, figure it out for him. I didn't. I was surprised at how much uh, vitriol there is directed at his choices. I mean, we. It, I do think that is one of the central questions of the book: when is enough enough? How much is the how much of a commitment do we have to a marriage that is um, going in unanticipated direction? Right. But it's clear also that Edie isn't particularly thrilled with Richard. No. And that she's not a particularly um, nice partner. No. And so she's it's tough. It becomes kind of a complicated scenario as more and more unfolds, and we realize. How, do we stay with someone if we can't identify something in them that wants to get better? Right. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I let him go. I I, for, I sort of forgave him as a writer for doing it. Ultimately, I did. Um, and uh, the thing that my understanding, but I didn't know what it was. I really honestly did not know what it was. And I don't know if I even really liked him until I would say the third time he shows up in the book. Um, but I, I began to understand that he just really believed in love, that it was really a romantic. And, uh, and so he left the relationship because he thought, I'm not, I'm not dead yet. I'm 60 years old and maybe I could find love again. So it's not out of a hatred for her, although I don't think he's crazy about her, but it's more about taking care of himself. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today with Jamie Attenberg about her novel, The Middlesteins. So, Jamie, why don't we have our listeners hear a little bit of the prose from the book? Okay. And by the way, I feel like we're having a very serious conversation, and this is a funny book as well, So, but it's easy to 
let's sink into that, I guess. It's so weird how it's, it is difficult to capture tone when we're talking like content and themes. It, it does seem like, oh, wow, this is such a heavy book about overeating and people who are flawed and are uh, judging each other. But it is a very uh, lively and uh, yeah. really funny a novel. You know, I think actually I'm going to read from, I, since based on our conversation, I'm going to read just from the very beginning of the book. So the way that the book is um, arranged is that about two-thirds of the book is written from different family members' perspectives. And then a third of the book is written from uh, either Edie's perspective or her mother's perspective in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and aughts. Um, and so the very first chapter, and it's her at different weights in her life. And the very first chapter um, takes place in the 1950s in um, Hyde Park neighborhood in Chicago. Um, and Edie's a child, and this is her at 62 pounds. How could she not feed their daughter? Little Edie Herzen, age five, not so little. Her mother had noticed this. How could she miss it? Her arms and legs, once peachy and soft, had blossomed into something that surpassed luscious. They were disarmingly solid. A child should be squeezable. She was a cement block of flesh. She breathed too heavy like someone's gassy old uncle after a meal. She hated taking the stairs. She begged to be carried up the four flights to their apartment. Her mother, uching, her back, the groceries, a bag of books from the library. I'm tired, said Edie. We're all tired, said her mother. Come on, help me out here. She handed Edie the bag of books. You pick these out. You carry them. Her mother, not so thin herself, nearly six feet tall, with a powerhouse of a body. She was a lioness who had a shimmer and a roar to her thick, majestic self. She believed she was a queen among women. Still, she was damp, and she had a headache, and the stairs weren't fun, she agreed. Her husband, Edie's father, always took the stairs two at once in a hurry to get to the next place. He was tall with a thick head of dark, spongy hair and had long, lanky, pale limbs, and his chest was so thin it was practically translucent. His ribs protruding, watery blue veins threaded throughout. After they made love, she would lazily watch the skin that covered his heart bob up and down, fast, slow, or slow. At meals, he ate and ate. He was carnal, primal about food. He staked out territory, leaning forward on the table, one arm resting around his plate, the other dishing the food into his mouth, not stopping to chew or breathe. But he never gained a pound. He had starved on his long journey from Ukraine to Chicago eight years before and had never been able to fill himself up since. When you looked at all the things in the world there were to agree upon, they had so little in common, this husband and wife. He was not a patriot. America had always been her home. She was more frivolous than he with money because to her, living in this vast, rich country, in the healthy city of Chicago, it always felt as if more money could be made. They went to separate synagogues, he to the one favored by the Russian immigrants, she to the one founded by Germans two generations earlier, where her parents had gone before they had died, the synagogue in which she'd grown up, and she could not let that go, not even in this new union. He had more secrets, had seen more hardships. She had only watched it on the news, and he would always carry his daughter Edie wherever she wanted to go, on his shoulders, high up in the sky, as close to God as he could get her. And she was absolutely certain that Edie should be walking everywhere by now. But they agreed about how to have sex with each other, any way they wanted, no judgment allowed, and how often, nightly at least, and they agreed that food was made of love and was what made love, and they could never deny themselves a bite of anything they desired. And if Edie, their beloved, big-eyed, already sharp-witted daughter, was big for her age, it did not matter, because how could they not feed her? I really loved the first chapter as sort of a hint of an origin story to give us sort of a possible clue to decoding Edie's motivations. But I was curious if there was any controversy around it between you and your editors. Did you feel like um, concerned about trying to explain 
the the behavior in terms of psychological family dynamics in that way, or was or was that pretty straightforward? You know, it, it is interesting that you asked that because that there were two chapters that um, my editor thought maybe we could cut, and that was this chapter and the chapter that um, the second Edie chapter which is when she's a teenager, um, and she wanted the very first chapter. This was very, very early on in the, in the editing process. Um, she wanted the first Edie chapter to be the chapter where she and Richard meet. And um, I disagreed, and I said if these aren't work My philosophy with editing is that if I don't agree with my edits, I will first tr- try to make it work harder. If, I, if my instinct is that it should be in there. I'll go back and write it harder rather than just cut it and agree immediately. And then if it still doesn't work, it doesn't work. But at least I've tried to do it. But I felt like it was really important. It was a really important part of understanding where she came from and and, and showing that it's – I also wanted to show her um, – I didn't want her to be seen as heavy the entire book. I wanted to have moments where you you knew a different side of her. And now when I do readings, I tend to read that chapter, and, and there's and there's another chapter where she's – She's thinner because it's almost like when you read the chapters where she's heavy. I didn't want to. I don't want to spoil it when I'm doing readings because I want there to be like if you've never read the book before, then you're then you sort of get to that point where oh, this is who she is. This is the this is the the not no pun intended, but the bigness of the situation. So I like I like people knowing a different side of her. I think it was important to have that for contrast. And in terms of the the origin story, her. Her parents is uh, starving Jewish immigrants from the Ukraine who, as a response, are, are going to uh, give her every comfort they can. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I was curious about around that is I know you've interfaced a lot with the Jewish community in, in promotion for the Middlesteins and even done uh, talks on Jews and food and, and, and maybe it was Jews and food and motherhood. I'm, I'm not sure if that was <laughs> one of them. Jews, food, and your mom. Jews, food. It was, was that one? I, well, I had, a, I had a book party in New York and I had invited all my friends to, who were writers to come and they, they, those were the three topics that they could choose from, Jews, food, and your mom. Nice. Any of them, but, they all, but a lot of the stories ended up being about all of them because they're very intertwined. How much do you feel like this is a Jewish story and how much do you feel like this could be any number of immigrant groups that have a strong connection to food and mothering, for yeah, instance? Yeah, right, and, li- and also life cycle events um, like wed- weddings and bar mitzvahs and, and you know, any, any kind of uh, funerals, for example, also. Well, I mean, I wrote it about, I don't think I sat down to write a Jewish book. I mean, none of my other books have been about Jews. There's some half Jews here and there, and but not. it's never really been about that. I wanted to write about this community, which is a Jewish community. Um, I thought this was, fa- I was. I thought I was writing a family drama for for sure. And although I was interested in having them all explore their faith, which all the characters do, um, but it has been. It's certainly been received across, you know, different faiths and ethnic backgrounds and everything. Like that. I just saw it. I got a review in, um, in an arts magazine that's published by Christianity Today. Oh, like it's like an evangelical Christian arts magazine, like a nice review. I haven't read it yet, but I, that's what I heard. And I was like, yay, I'm so excited, you know, and it's being published, in, you know, in all these different countries. Um, and I just saw the the Taiwanese edition and it's it's gorgeous and amazing. And um, although I don't obviously know what it, it could say anything within it, but I, I suspect that it, it's footnoted very heavily. So I think that they really did stay true to the text. But um I think it, I hope that it is universal. I hope it's a universal story. 
I think it is universal, but I, but at the same time, I was wondering if did the Jewish, at least the Jewish institutional community, embrace it? They, it has. I has definitely been embraced. It feels very personal to them. And this is just based on me doing. I mean, I'm doing events where I'll have hundreds of people in the room who you know a lot mo, a lot of book clubs of Jewish women, um, and they, it feels. I've had them say to me, "How do how could anyone else want to read this book except for us? Because it's so our, it's so our book, which is so cool. I mean, it's great that it's been. I, it's a demographic that I've never had before. Yeah, I sort of want you know don't know if I should tell them to read my other books because I'm not really sure if they're going to like the other books as much. But uh, although they're good books, but. Um, yeah, it's a strange. It's a really strange thing to basically spending every weekend with your family, you know, right? Uh, which I never do. So, well, you did pick in terms of life cycles. Picking Passover and sitting Shiva are two very food intricate, um, right? Jewish rituals. I mean, obviously, most not they're every- all. I mean, listen, they're all food intricate. There's not one of them that does not have. Even if you're even the days when you don't get to eat all day, all you're doing is sitting there thinking about eating, about eating, and now it's going to be a really awesome meal at the end of it. So. But sitting shiva might be a, a time morning that might seem interesting to non-Jews to learn that that Jews eat at, as part of the grieving process. Right? Yeah. The, I mean, we always eat. It's true. There's a lot of eating. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot. Um, but it's good. It's good. It's comfort. It's comforting. I was just saying last night that I because I've been on tour for the past couple of days. That I, I, my new tour strategy is to always have some food in my bag with me, which I didn't have never done before. And I find that I just going and having some trail mix in my bag with me, even if I don't eat it, I just feel comforted knowing that if I'm stranded somewhere, like I, I have something I can eat that makes me feel better, makes me feel less alone. Well, in one way, you could look at this book being not really about food. It could be about any condition that a person had, an illness, and whether it's okay to leave somebody who's ill, even if it wasn't a food-related illness, for instance. But there are ways in which a food-related problem in this family touches on some bigger American themes, Mm. but also touches on things that are unique to obesity. You did write an article once about the history. Oh, my history of being fat. History yeah. of being fat and talking about always being fat adjacent. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'd love to hear what that means, but also how that's really different than what Edie's going through because she's, she's sure. crossed a line which I think shuts a lot of other venues down for her in terms of access for other forms of love and It's comfort. true. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Because when I was... And I'll talk about the essay in a second. But when I was doing research for this, I was I talked to a friend of mine who is who is overweight, obese I guess obese. Um, and she had written a, another book about being fat. Um, and so she'd interviewed a lot of people who were who were much much bigger than her. So maybe Edie's size. So Edie's three hundred and fifty pounds by the end of the book. And um, the way that she explained it to me was that is that you start to lose things that are. And this is just from a female perspective. I don't know. Again, I wasn't writing that. I, I don't know anything about that, about being a man and being obese. But uh, that you lose access to, you know, shopping isn't fun, as much fun for you. Or uh, maybe you're getting inappropriate attention from men or no, or no attention from men. Or... Um, just going out is maybe, you know, physically uncomfortable or it's just not, you know, the only, you know, some of the few joys that you have left really are, it's food. Food become the thing that kind of put you in the corner that you're in is, becomes the only, I mean, that's, I think it's wet that way kind of with any addiction, but it becomes the only thing that you can spend time with or makes you feel comfortable. Um, 
So uh, for me, I weighed, I think probably, I you know, when I wrote that essay, I, was, I think I said I weighed 50 pounds more. Well, now I've done a year of book touring, so 40 pounds more. <laughs> um, people like to feed me at their uh, book club events, I'll always the chi- with the Chinese food at the book club events. Those, so Those were the most delicious chapters. There were chapters with Edie Eating that were kind of grotesque, but there were other chapters that were just really delving into the joy and sensuality of eating. Absolutely. I mean, I want. I, I love food, and I always want, I wanted to make it sound good. I, I don't think that it's not really the food's fault. It's kind of what we do with the food. Um, and fault is, of course, a tricky word. But um, anyway, so I weighed more. I certainly understand the concept of emotional eating. Um, but I was never at the state that she was in, so I really did have to imagine what that would feel like or what that would be like and I didn't I was very careful not to describe her too much physically because I didn't I mean every character gets to look at her once and see her see the way that she looks once and that's it I never want we already know you know we get who she is and what she looks like so it was I don't I really didn't want her to seem grotesque at all I wanted her to be like a really strong awesome person charismatic person who was capable of looking great because there's moments where she looks really great in the book too I really loved her she was my favorite character in the book I want she's the one I would most want to go out to dinner with for sure because she would know all the good places to go and she was the most she was the smartest she was the most culturally culturally aware the most um, politically aware she educated other people she was kind and loyal and um, and I really I really loved her, and I get uh, upset when I do events where people don't love her, mm-hmm. and I feel like I have to pr- protect her or, def- or defend her. Because, but I think that people get frustrated with her because they're really frustrated with somebody else in their life who's not changing, or yeah, or something like that. Because they're just people who get mad at her for not being who who they want her to be. But that's the way life works. People frustrate you. Yeah. So. And by creating this very complex family structure, you really you really learn a lot about your readers based on how their responses mm-hmm. are to characters. Who do they love and who do they not like? And obviously it's not the same with every person who comes, which m- means you've created a, a complex system that lives on its own. Yeah. And it, and it is funny when people question me on things at events and, and want to know why somebody does this or that and... And then I tell them, and they're like, mm, I don't think so. And I'm like, no, 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 it's true because I wrote it. So <laughs> I, I win because I wrote the book. So, you know, they don't – people really – the other thing is people read the book, and then sometimes at the end of the book they say, oh, I was really hungry. Is that weird? And then most people say that. And then some people say, oh, it never made me never want to eat again. And both answers are, sort, are correct, but it's whatever you bring to it. It's like a, it's a Rorschach test for how you feel about food. And whatever you bring to it is going to impact your reading of it. All, you know, I've learned so much in the last year about criticism and reader responses and things like that. So I know what I wrote. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's cool to hear different ideas. So I want to read the blurb from Jonathan Franzen that's on the book and then talk to you just briefly about the ending. So Jonathan Franzen says, The Middlesteins had me from its very first pages, but it wasn't until its final pages that I fully appreciated the range of Ad- Attenberg's sympathy and the artistry of her storytelling. And I had a similar experience. I felt like the book did two things really well. On the one hand, like 90% of the book, 
I was in a feeling like, wow, this could just keep going forever. And I would really enjoy just spending time with this family sort of figuring itself out and how to communicate with each other and watching the ways that they don't communicate and the humor and the discord. And there's this almost this sense of how in the world is this going to end? Because it doesn't feel like it's necessarily going towards one, though you've created this really compelling atmosphere. And then out of the blue, the this really moving unexpected ending happens mm. and it's great Thanks. and uh it, it really ties all this stuff together but it, you, there's almost no warning for it and I, I was wondering how much did you have your sight set on that or did you feel like and of course we're not going to do any spoilers yeah. but did you um stumble across it see I feel like well, first of all, I, ne- I never know how I'm going to end a book because I feel like if I know when I'm writing it, then I'm going to telegraph it to the reader. So I and also and, and also it's just not as much fun for me as a writer. Like I like to be surprised and uncover things. Um, so I I don't think I really I sort I knew kind of one thing like had to ha- had to happen at the end, but um, but the last three chapters in particular, when I was writing it, I was because they're they are very different. They kind of pull out a, a little. They write from come from different perspectives. New characters are that have existed, but they kind of become more prominent at the end. And um, I'm not really giving anything away, am I? It's okay, right? I think you're doing really okay. Good. Um, so uh, so um, I f- I had a feeling when I was writing it, like I wanted to do a grand finale. Like I really wanted to have like I've fireworks really you know I was just thinking how do I how do I really elevate this and and everything just kind of came at once and I kept I was hearing um there's one chapter and I don't really think I'm giving anything away it's written from a collective voice and and there's sort of this Jewish Greek Greek chorus that that at the pops, bar mitzvah. yeah at the bar mitzvah and they were really chattering at me the entire book like they were really offering like kind of offering their opinion the entire book but never being allowed to like pop up in in the text and I and they were so they just were so noisy by the end of the book I was like all right here you go here's your shot and once I did that I was like oh I you know let me do some other things that just kind of feel different and like I, I don't need to go down any there's no path there's no there's there's no requirement there, any, anything could happen right now it's a very it's a very freeing thing when you arrive at that moment with your writing that you don't need to tie anything up in, in any kind of specific way so it was very exci- it was actually very exciting for me to write the end of this book I was it was as sad as uh mo- some moments are it was very joyful for me because I got to try new things I yeah felt, I felt like I really I'd always kind of liked the endings I mean I liked all my books and I liked the endings but I never felt like I felt always felt like it was more about the journey and less about where it you know arrived at and so this was a whole different thing. It was fun. It was super fun to write. Hard. Really hard. Yeah. Writing's hard. <laughs> well, well speak, speaking of new things, you've been touring for the Middlesteins for quite a long time, and, and now you're touring for the paperback. What are you working on now? Tell us a little bit about, if, if you want, tell us a little bit about your, any new project you're working on and, and um, what's exciting you about it. Well, I've been writing a lot of essays this year, which is really cool. I have some essays coming out in magazines this fall, and I did some earlier this year. I probably wrote six or seven essays that are coming out and have come out or will come out in magazines. So that's kind of a big deal because it's a bigger audience for me. I do a lot of stuff online, um, which is also a big audience, but it's fun It's fun to have something that's like in a actual – that you can actually hold. Um, and then I have a book, which is t- t- supposed to be due at the end of the year, 
we're going to see <laughs> if I get there. And that I'm most excited about. Um, and it's been, you know, the one bad thing about the past year has been that I just haven't been able to write as much as I would have liked. Essays are kind of easy, not easy, but easier to do because they're, you know, 2,000 words, 3,000 words, you're done, and a book is a whole big thing. Um, but this is about, um, did you ever read Up in the Old Hotel by Joseph Mitchell? I didn't. So it's a collection of essays from the uh, his essays that he wrote for the New Yorker in the 1940s and 1950s. And one of the essays in that book is about a woman named Maisie Phillips. And she ran a movie theater on the Bowery in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. And she was known as the Queen of the Bowery. And she you know, was in this ticket booth all day on the Bowery watching, you know, living through all of these amazing eras in our history in New York City. And, um, and she was this boozy body broad and she lived a very modern existence independent existence um and when she got off work so she worked 9 a.m to 11 p.m every night when she got off work she would walk the streets of the bar and she would help all the homeless men hmm. and save lives and give them money and get them into flop houses and call ambulances and she carried little bars of soap around in her pocket that she would like hotel bars of soap she would give to them so I just became really interested in her, but there's not a lot. There's this one essay, this one iconic essay, and then I found, you know, went down the internet wormhole and I found an obituary, and then I found um, an article for from when she retired, and and she, in it she said that she was either going to, or she said that she was going to write a memoir, and then um, she either didn't write it or she wrote it and it just never went anywhere, and that was the seed for me that I really wanted to write her life story, fictional. Very fictional. I just have, and I don't have that much information. It's one of those cases of I, I don't, I wanted to know more about her. It didn't exist. So I'm writing it so that it does exist. Well, that's great. That sounds really interesting. I think it will be really interesting. I, I, I have some of it done. I have a long, long, long ways to go. I definitely do not know how it ends, which is, again, it's fun, but it's a little scary because I, you know, it's due, kind of due, but I, I, said please can I maybe make it late a little bit so we'll, it might be that but it's I'm just to me she's a very even though she's not Edie at all but she's a very Edie-esque character I have a lot of characters like that in my books where they're incredibly flawed and yet they're just incredibly great people who are worthy of loving and who do amazing things and help people and are compassionate and 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 just lead interesting lives and that that is I will write about that for eternity probably it was great having you on Between the Covers, Jamie. Thanks. I loved it. We're talking today with Jamie Attenberg about her novel, The Middlesteens. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host.